0: I want to have a clean house, you know, which is a value that I think a lot of people come up with. And you say, why, what is it about the clean house? Well, I want a sense of spaciousness. And we ask even after that, like, why, what is it about that? What is spaciousness? I want to have a restful heart. I want to have a restful mind. And then we actually get to it. But that was, you know, if you stopped at a clean house, it's so surface level and people skip over it. But when they go, I want to have a spacious heart and mind, mm-hmm. you get to the core of it. And that's the principle versus the technique. When you knock on the door of higher knowledge, let's call it, you knock on the door of higher knowledge and it answers, stop knocking.
1: You know, I love the idea of a process that, that, that means we're awake and we're conscious and we're aware and we're alive, you know, and, and we're, we don't know what wants to happen next. We're discovering it. Well, kia ora, greetings, hello, and I would like to extend you a very warm welcome back to the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast with me, your host, Dan Palmer, speaking to you on Father's Day in this part of the world. Not a big deal for us, but I did get some spontaneously and beautifully created drawings from my two lovely daughters, not to mention an abundance of cuddles. Uh, This is episode 51, sixth day of spring today, looking out across a lot of blossoms and a beautiful, clear, sunny spring day after a lovely hour or so in the garden. I've decided to make this episode a continuation of the theme around holistic decision-making. I just so happened to have a lovely conversation with my colleague Javin Bernakovich from allpointsdesign.ca over in Canada just yesterday morning, and it felt a very appropriate continuation of this theme, which I think is relevant right now for a bunch of reasons. One is that Uh, It's a time of great complexity, uncertainty, we're all navigating a lot. Some of us have our previous career has evaporated before our eyes and we're we're navigating into new spaces and making decisions as individuals, families, organisations and so on. Another one is that for me, holistic decision making is a core aspect of the larger body of work that I've realised I'm kind of participating in, the evolution and growth of in in what's really going to be a multi-decade project and so i wanted to bring a focus on that so those of you interested in this particular aspect of the larger body of work which also includes living design process and other aspects will will flesh out in due course so you can dive on in and get a good working feel for it it's also coinciding with an experiment i've been doing with seeing to what extent i can bring previous workshops i've held on the matter which are usually two or three day retreats into an online format and so i booked in a course some weeks back and that's halfway through two hours a week for six weeks and my gosh it's going so incredibly well I'm just blown away by the level of engagement and what turns out to be possible even though it's all online so the second one has just started and I've booked in a third, that starts September 30 which you can check out at holisticdecisionmaking.org if you're interested in being part of that experiment less experimental I guess than the first two and they're improving every time but we got off to a cracking good start there so moving on I wanted to give you a bit of news one exciting thing that's well underway is that I'm collaborating with David Holmgren and a beautiful cinematographer, videographer friend and colleague called David Marr to create a high quality documentary film on the subject of David Holmgren reading landscape and I'm really thrilled this is coming to pass. It was an idea that came out of one of my many ideas that I have a few years ago and it this one turns out to have a destiny, a future. It's actually happening. We've got a huge amount of amazingly high quality footage. And though the website's not quite live. You'll be able to read more about that soon at readinglandscape.org. And again, so deeply relevant to this larger body of work that I'm so passionate about, which is around, at its, at its core or essence, around developing design and creation process intelligence, awareness, capacity towards supporting myself and others to transform the value, to massively enhance the value that our design and creation processes bring to the the communities and ecologies we work with and we touch, towards coming back home, coming back home to, to life and aliveness in the sense of entering the delicious ongoing coevolution of ourselves and the larger systems we're nested within. Acknowledging huge inspiration here from Carol Sanford's take on what she calls the regenerative educator meta-role. Something else that is happening, just for your interest, and I also wanted to make an invitation here, is that I've decided to venture into the territory of the arena, um, territory is maybe the wrong word, the arena or space of of decolonization, its relationship to the conversations around nature connection, uh, this topic... Heard, heard a bit of mention of this idea of becoming indigenous or reindigenizing. and um, I'm approaching that with a curious spirit of inquiry and starting to talk to people and do some reading and thinking, and um, and I have a have a strong sense that what I'll be discovering and learning will be very relevant to this this larger conversation, and um, I'm excited to be approaching it through the lens of systemic thinking and things like Carol Sanford's four levels of paradigm, um, and bringing clarity and. And um, navigating what I see as uh, polarized ruts, you know, we can either have this position or that position, whereas I'm curious to navigate through the, the space and and find my own position. And the reason I'm mentioning this is I, I want to invite anybody out there who has some kind of experience with or thoughts about this, these subjects to reach out. Because what I'd like to do is record a series of very short um, interviews or even have you just audio record your answers to a few questions or reflections on a few points that I'll mention shortly and at some point I'll put together an episode where I share a diversity of different perspectives on the matter and how it might relate to permaculture. I didn't mention that but what originally sparked my interest was hearing these conversations around the concept of decolonizing permaculture and I want to find out what that means for different people and whether or not and how it's relevant to me and to this project. So if you're interested in chiming in on, on questions like what is colonization for you? Possibly in a biological, ecological, and a social or territorial human context. Um, and then leading into what, what does decolonization mean for you? I'd be curious also to hear from people of what this word indigenous means. What does that mean for you? And what about the idea of becoming indigenous or re What does that bring up for you both in terms of how you define it and also you know, your position or reflections or how you feel about it? Um, okay, so moving right along, it's sort of a, a work in progress. Um, I want to thank Scott Mann from the Permaculture Podcast or acknowledge him. He recently re-released my conversation with Alan Savory as an episode and it marks a, um, a concrete initial step in our shared intention that Scott and I have to collaborate and to, to cross-pollinate. Very, very excited to have Scott's um, support and friendship and, to, and looking forward to where that takes takes the um, the conversations between the, the permaculture podcast, which I believe is the longest standing permaculture podcast, thousands of episodes, huge listenership, and how that can relate to making permaculture stronger, which is a bit more of a niche thing with its specific focus on, on design process. Oh yes, I wanted to thank you all so much, well, not all of you, those of you that have been reaching out. So each week I'm getting several messages. Um, it's always exciting to, to hear from people that have discovered the blog and the podcast. And um, rather than just sort of picking it up where it is and listening to episodes as they come out, a lot of you are diving back and and reading, uh, listening from the beginning or reminding me of the inspiration I took from previous episodes. So I'm so excited to be accumulating this this ongoing repository or resource that people are getting value from and I'm finding that a lot of people um, are making progress in their own relationship with permaculture. Some people have had a bit of a love-hate thing going on or they've parted ways and and for some of you, you're finding some of the work I've been doing um, a kind of a pathway back in or something that's spoken to aspects of permaculture that you've had a, uh, had a longing to see happening. So thanks so much. It's it's a beautiful feeling for me to feel the support and this lovely feeling I have of that I'm, a, I'm on a journey with others, that we're, we're moving forward together. And um, I'm, I'm seeing more and more that it's a journey that's going to continue unfolding over many years. And it's it's a beautiful, beautiful thing that um, you know, I acknowledge that I appear to be playing some kind of uh, leadership or... Um, I don't know, guidance of, of, of a sort um, and yet also that if it wasn't for all the background conversations, all the guests and, and all the incredible support that um, would be happening so it's, I very much feel it's an authentically collaborative endeavour even if I'm the way uh, often the spokesperson or the author of... A lot of the, the outcomes of these conversations. Um, oh, so yes, in particular, I wanted to to, uh, to do a sh- they call it a shout out, I believe, a shout out to Joanne from the Philippines. So a couple of days ago, signed up as a patron on uh, Patreon.com/slash/ Making Permaculture Stronger. Thanks so much, Joanne, and I hope you're enjoying the um, the resource page with all the design reports and um, extra videos and audio snippets and all that that you are hopefully now accessing. Oh yes, and before we jump in with Javin, I remembered I'm going to drop in an audio snippet from a recent conversation I had with April Sampson-Kelly of Permaculture Visions, an elder in the Australian permaculture movement and a pioneer in online permaculture education. April invited me onto her YouTube channel and we had a chat a couple of weeks back. Um, So if you look for Permaculture Visions on YouTube, you can track that down. She's been started in, I think, a new series where she's interviewing a lot of wonderful permaculture folk across the country and no doubt the world. Anyway, um, she started with a very open question. What, what would I like to talk about regarding permaculture design process? And I shared a distinction that was alive for me in that moment between process and procedure. And because that distinction is further fleshed out in the conversation with Javin, forming the bulk of this episode, I thought I would just um, sort of seed the conversation and bring bring me applying it to the topic of design process before we take the same distinction and talk about it in the context of holistic decision making so I'll do that and then I guess I'll I'll let you know as the segue happens and I won't check in at the end this time I think I've said enough up front so all the best thanks again for your support and listenership and we'll catch you in the next episode goodbye for now hello Dan Palmer I want to thank you so much for spending time with us today greetings April my pleasure to be here with you what would you like to share with me about your approach to doing a design? What a wonderful open question. One thing that comes up for me is that I've been reflecting on since a gathering I had with a group of fellow designers a couple of nights back was around the distinction between a a design process as in permaculture design process and a design procedure and I thought that could be quite interesting and I'm always struggling to find really clear ways of (laughs) kind of sharing some of the things I I'm feeling with my design practice so if you're up for it I could I could explain that a little bit and we could see where that takes us.
0: I'd love to. Okay
1: wonderful all right as you probably know I'm passionately interested in permaculture design and particularly permaculture design process like how is it that we go about realizing permaculture's potential how is it that we get from I don't know someone arriving on some land that they want to evolve with and make more productive like being in the game and having some things growing and letting the system continue to evolve you know what's the how? And one thing I've noticed is that culturally, and permaculture is part of a wider culture, and so we, we pick this up from our wider culture, is that we tend to default, when we want to do something, to a, what I call a procedure. A procedure is like a recipe or a model. It's a linear sequence of steps. Step one, for example, step one, observe. Step two, design. Step three, implement. Step four, evaluate. You know, just like, all step one, mix the banana and the flour. Step two, add the eggs, that sort of thing. And so we're very geared, um, actually geared is the right word because it's a a mechanical analogy and procedures are kind of mechanical in the way they work or, or mechanistic. It's kind of like, you know, push the button on this machine and then it'll produce something that goes on the conveyor belt to the next machine and so on. And so often when I see people talking about process and design process and giving examples of permaculture design process, that's not what they're talking about. To me, what they're talking about is a procedure and there's nothing wrong with procedures; they're great, you know. Like if just the other day, like what was it, like a meringue or something? I, I tried cooking something I hadn't cooked before. No, was it one of those um, gluten-free almond cakes? And I needed a procedure, right? Yeah. If I just launched into, I would have I've got myself in a lot of trouble. So I was very grateful. So there's a place and a, a huge value in procedures, um, and there's also a huge danger, a huge risk if we mistake procedure for process. And what we can do is, if we're attached to a particular procedure, like here's my permaculture design procedure, and it's better than yours, and it's better than theirs, and and what we're going to do is step one, and oh, we, we don't want to jump from step four to step six. We need to do step five first. What you're doing is you're impo- you're imposing a procedure, and the more I work, and the more I kind of understand what process means for me. Um, where process is something that's alive and adapted to the moment and it's like a constant dance, is that I'll pull in procedures as appropriate, but I'll also be very ready to drop them and let them go and to do whatever is the right thing to do next, if that makes sense. I actually came across a beautiful quote about this from Carol Sanford just this morning. I'm reading through her book, The Regenerative Business. And I could read it out if you like. And sure. Then we could, that'd be lovely. Okay, and it'd be great. Okay. And then it'll be great to see, you know, have your reflections. Yeah, I really love this. And she just she she captured what I'm talking about really beautifully. She said, processes occur in real time. Within the changing circumstances of the real world, they are not procedures. One of the unfortunate residues of the mechanistic way of thinking is that she says most organizations, but we could say that most of us try to turn processes which are alive and based on what is happening in the moment into procedures which are predetermined. And I love this bit. This excites me, this next bit. Processes require people to be present and awake. Procedures put people to sleep and make them mechanical. Ah, I love that. I love that. You know, I love the idea of a process that, that, that mean we're awake and we're conscious and we're aware and we're alive, you know, and, and we're, we don't know what wants to happen next. We're discovering it as opposed to a procedure that puts us to sleep and step one, step two, step three. Okay, and with that snippet shared, which I'm sure you'll see the relevance of it to this conversation with Javin, let's jump on in with Javin. All right, so here I am with my dear friend and colleague, Javin kirby Banakovich. I'm speaking from Central Victoria, Australia. You are where? I am uh, Central British Columbia, Canada and this may be the first of a of a series of things or at least the idea is we we'll record conversations on the on our on the topic of our mutual passion and interest for the different ways we've developed holistic management something i call calling holistic decision making what do you what are some of the phrasings you use
0: uh i have three phrasings which is good uh, to confuse people <laughs> uh, i've also used holistic decision making because alan Savory, who created this process uh, well, created the initial process, and both of us have have added to it. So we'll we'll, we'll keep the branching tree idea. Hmm. Uh, I've called it holistic decision making. I've called it whole decision making, and I've called it values based decision making, depending on who I'm speaking to. Because sometimes yep. all three of those those ways of being, those ways of speaking about it, can turn people on or turn people off. And generally, I want to, you know, in this space, turn people on.
1: So yeah, yeah, yep. wonderful. All right, yeah. Well, so the idea is we kind of. We're going for sort of accessible shop talk. We get to actually continue to operate as we have for some years as thinking and feeling partners and sharing our develops and developments of this work and cross-pollinating. And we wanted to do it in a way that's ideally achieves that tick. It also is an, accessible to people new to the subject so they can get something out of it. And it's a value to people that might have been using it for some time, even for even some years, and interested in, in deepening the conversation. So... As I mentioned before we got on the call, over the last couple of days I've been working very intensively with holistic decision making just recently. I'm running some online courses and I'm working with a number of different organisations to support them to get clear on their values and articulate this thing we call the context or a holistic context and get into the flow of making decisions toward it and and managing uncertainty and complexity and, and so on, benefiting from the whole approach. And as I've been going along, the impact of Carol Sanford's work, she's associated with something called Living Systems Thinking, um, has been having quite an impact on me. And I wanted to play around today, Javin, with a few distinctions that I'm enjoying and I think are deepening my relationship with holistic decision-making. Sound good? Great. All righty. So the distinction is still just sort of still congealing, just emerging for me, but it's this is how we could refer to it. It's between a procedure and its steps – Versus, or in contrast to a process and its principles. And what I'm realizing is that when people read about holistic management and also when they come and learn about my development of it, holistic decision making, often what they're looking for is a, is a procedure with steps, which is basically a recipe or a formula. So it's like, what do I do? Okay, it might be step one, define the whole under management. Step two, define the decision maker. Step three, um, audit the resource space. Step four, write down some. A quality of life statement, step four, you know, so you get, the, you get the idea. And that's what we kind of, we have an appetite. We've been socialized to have an appetite for. And as I've been working with this stuff, I often change things around. Like I, I change words. I'll give you a simple example. The other day I was sitting with that initial question of define the whole under management. And I was thinking, I don't even like the word management that much. And I was thinking, what, what, that's not a big enough concept for me. You know, management, It's like, and I was thinking, do I just want, do I want to manage my marriage, manage my life, you know, manage my business? This seems a bit lacking in ambition <laughs> in the sense of, to me, it's, it's like, I want to steer the thing, you know, I want to kind of make, make decisions and steer it in a sensible way. And then I, I was thinking, what I'm interested in is development, you know, like, which to me is a bigger concept. You can't develop something if you're not managing it, but development, contains and evokes a lot more you're actually growing the thing you're, you're evolving it and so I was like my, from now on my question is what's the whole under development or the whole being developed and in the past I, I've struggled with oh am I kind of departing from you know the, the official step as opposed to moving over to what I'm calling thinking of it as more of a process with principles you know the principle might be I don't know clarify clarify the focus or something and whether you call it a Poland management, management, it doesn't matter. You know, the, the actual, if you're thinking about it as, as, a, as a step, you kind of, it's almost like you want to homogenize it across its different applications and the way different people use it. Whereas if you're thinking about it as a process with principles, the words you use and how it shows up can vary enormously so long as you honor the underlying intention, which I, I, I believe that you and I, to some degree, have managed to do that with Alan Savory, to appreciate the, the process and the principles that he was trying to articulate, It's very hard to articulate without sort of writing it as if it's a procedure with steps. Anyway, that's the distinction. And there's a few directions I'd love to take it with you, but maybe let's start by hearing your, how that lands for you so far.
0: Yeah. I, I think you and I, as a rule, love words and we love the thoughts and the processes and the images that come up from words. And so words for us become the vehicles in which we transfer an idea and those ideas can be transferred well they can be transferred not well depending on how we hold that idea when i developed uh the the online course for for what i called making better decisions uh, clarifying your values and making decisions through your values i've said it multiple times in in the module work on on my website where i will say something like we're going to take an inventory of this project we're building our values about and that project can be your life that project can be a business it can be a, a relationship it can be a family and that idea of whatever the word works for you because years ago as i was talking about the eight forms of capital something that you and i have both um, enjoyed and used to help people inventory aspects of this project or this whole that they are developing or managing um, i had somebody who had a massive allergic reaction to the word resources and capitals and they just they family this is not what I'm about I'm not about capital I'm about stuff <laughs> okay great call it stuff the <laughs> word does not have to be the concept it doesn't have to be the idea uh, so however the word lands and you know thinking culturally I, I'm a huge fan of Duolingo the uh, language learning app and the individual who created it Luis and how when they developed the icon the mascot for Duolingo this owl when they went into Asian cu- cultures, the the owl is not necessarily the the symbol of wisdom. It's the it's the, it's the uh, omen bringer of ill will or ill problem, oh, wow. and they had to actively change that. And so, I I'm completely with you. the 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 verbiage matters to the storyteller, to the teacher, to the facilitator, and as much matters to those that are on the receiving end. And so, if it's procedure and process, and that helps Dan tell it. And expand it and not just hold to management, which does seem crouched in this you know business focused enterprise focused way, which kind of seems poor around how do you manage your land or as i 've heard it before, if I asked you if your relationship was sustainable and you said, "Yes, should I be worried? You know that whole idea <laughs> of sustainability to relationship we want regenerative relationships, we want relationships that are better than before then yeah, it's time to find some verbiage and some vernacular that gets people excited and makes people go, oh, this is rich and lovely instead of management.
1: Yeah. No, that, that's a good example you gave. I mean, personally, I've just, I've had a similar relationship with that word resource. So I was like, what am I calling your resource for? So I'm calling it a support. The reason being that I can can reclaim what for me is a more profound and powerful use of the word resource, which to me now I think of it as what I'm doing with the list of decision-making is returning people to themselves as a source, you know, in terms of sourcing their own quality of life statements and sourcing their own power to make decisions. I was realizing that I was kind of unconsciously belittling the word resource by making it equivalent to support. And of course, too, there's that that issue of like, hang on, when I'm talking about the supports I have in my life, my wife is one of those and is my wife a resource? <laughs> Would she like to be <laughs> referred to as a resource? But anyway, that's that conversation. And and yeah, being able to move and flex with the words and the way that the steps in a procedure, if that's how it's landing for someone, what they are based on the context coming from a place of understanding the underlying process and its principles where the risk of courses with a lot more than just holistic decision-making is that people don't pick up that distinction and they copy and paste the procedure and its steps and those become ossified and stagnant and Dysfunctional over time. I'll give you. I'll give you one other example that I've just. I just feel a lot freer about. One of the steps in holistic management, as it was articulated so brilliantly by Alan, is this idea of test a decision. So you know, you kind of assess what you're dealing with, you articulate a context which has different layers, and then the rubber starts hitting the road, and you start making decisions. And to do that holistically, the ultimate way of doing that is to test it against these decisions. And Alan had these seven testing questions and it's just become really clear in the last week or so that it's it's nothing about there being seven. There's nothing special about the number seven. There's nothing special about the exact way those questions are wording. The point of the question is to get you thinking what, what he calls holistically, or, to, or what I'm starting to talk about, to get you thinking systemically about the entire situation, about the possible consequences, um, about whether you're making an action in, in the place of greatest impact, stuff like that. And so in the last few weeks, I've gone from... I'd gone from seven down to five. Then I was back up to six. I so think I'm now up to eight. <laughs> and, and it's like, it's, it's okay. You know, so from one course to another, someone might say, hey, Dad, on the last course, there were seven questions. What, what's happening? I thought I had it. The point is that there's nothing magic about seven. Mix it up. And I'll, I'll keep regenerating it for myself to keep it alive and, and, try, and always try and get to the holy grail of kind of really, you know, that you never actually get to of, of making it as clear as possible but I'm feeling very kind of liberated and free to, to bring this to it and to know that I'm doing everything I can to honor the, the process and the principles of the process that I was so inspired by with Alan without needing to kind of cling obsessively to the particular um, ways that came out for him. Cause of course, you know, as he said in our recent chat, um, when I interviewed him, it's still a young thing. It's, you know, holistic management is 30, 40 years old. It's in its infancy. It's if it's not growing and evolving then something's wrong. Okay, your turn. That was a bit of a long rave.
0: It's about drilling and about, you know, it's funny. Drilling gives you a core sample of what you're looking at, which then gives you an overarching idea about what you're looking at. And that's where I appreciate our conversations because we're really looking at what does this thing called holistic decision making give you? And it gives you a tool, as you were talking about, to think systemically, to think holistically, to think in systems, to think in holons and how those H-O-L-O-N holons, nested systems, nest within each other and how you interact with those holons, those nested systems. How do I interact with you while interacting with my family, while interacting with my business and think in the broadest scope possible. And I think that's where Alan hit the nail on the head until we think in that broad range in institutions or governments we're going to be going backwards for a really long time. And the idea of pulling apart this concept and saying, it's a tool to help you get to a place of thinking in that way is something that I, I, I end up educating a lot of the, the clients I work with and colleagues, a lot of colleagues I work with, a lot of um, folks who've been through uh, HMI training, holistic management, international training or savory Institute training where for some reason they haven't really grokked the conversation or it didn't make them feel great. And so they come after, and we just talked about this. We, we end up working with a lot of people who've already taken a course and going, I didn't, I didn't quite get it. I didn't quite understand it. And I get this question a lot. I imagine you do as well. Like how, how long do I have to use this tool? And it's so funny. It's like, well, how long do you exercise until you feel that your strength and flexibility and mobility and, and, and system feels amazing. And then figuring out a way to where, the maintenance of that in a way that makes sense helps. And that's been so interesting because folks will go, okay, great. And then they'll call me six months later and go, Oh, things are terrible. It's like, how's, how's your use of the tool? And they're like, Oh, I haven't touched it in six, six months. It's like, Oh, interesting. So the dose dependency went down and then we'll start on spot checking again. And then we'll bring we'll bring in all these tools, bring in daily statements of purpose, which is something that is very specific to the way I use it. But the way I look at the testing questions is a pre-mortem. And we talk about this idea about post-mortem. We finish something, it dies, and we go, why did it not work out? You know, for me, filtering, testing, experimenting decisions is a pre-mortem. Why might this die? Why might this come out um, stillborn, so to speak? And then working through whatever the tools, the techniques, the processes are. And it's funny, I found with certain people, I'll use certain questions or I'll put them into their, their state of questions. I'll get people who are just so remarkably into uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's work and the idea of anti-fragility and the idea of a fragile future and an anti-fragile future. And I'll put in a question about, um, will this lead towards or away from a fragile or an anti-fragile future? However it is that they think about, And I'll ask them what questions are missing in this for you as an individual. What questions did your grandmother used to ask? What questions about your own personal decision-making world have really helped you? You know, there's a heuristic I use for speaking engagements and teaching engagements. If this happened tomorrow, would I do this? And that decision, that testing question doesn't necessarily fit in. Should I plant, um, should I plant black tomatoes the next year? That's, not a great question for that but when it comes to events i use that question and this is really where you know the bookshelf of all these decision making uh, books behind me comes into play about always being open to different filters to put into it and that's what i love about what you've said the idea of using it as a filter right having different types of filters that we put in for different questions because it can take out some of the impurities or the issues within that question to really get to the core of it
1: yeah yeah right on I, lo- I love how you brought up that um that issue that can crop up of oh six months uh, life's terrible again so how's it going <laughs> you're still using the tool no I stopped using it okay so 100% correlation between <laughs> using it and quality of life interesting a- another aspect of that, that I know you've you've touched on in various places is that it's it's kind of a I don't know if you said it's a paradox because in a way you can't we're brought up, so we actually need something that feels like a procedure and steps. Just we need something to grab on to, otherwise, we feel lost and we're at sea. Carol Sanford calls these models that, that for her, a procedure with steps is, is a model, it's a fixed recipe, as opposed to what she calls a framework, which is what, what I'm calling a procedure, a process and its principles. Um, and so, the way to get to a process and principles for most of us is initially through a procedure and its steps. But if we don't realize that's the point and we and we cling to the procedure and its steps, it's very easy. It's it's it, it's harder to keep it going, you know, because it's like, oh, I've got to be doing all seven steps, or I've got to be doing this and the months are going by and life's getting complex. Whereas we both know from our lived experience, you know, really thoroughly going there, possibly for the average person with, with applying this to our lives and getting to the point where it's not, it's not, it's almost, it's entered our bloodstream, you know, it's in the cell, it's in our bones, it's in our cells. It's like we can't not approach life this way anymore. And it's not just because the payoff is so significant, it's that, it's it stopping at all, you know, in a, in a way, if it's a tool, it's, um, it's probably more of a procedure in its steps, but it's it's become a way of being a way of life, just a native default way of thinking and approaching decision-making. And if you can get there, then I think you're a lot, obviously a lot safer and you're much more likely to continue it because it's not necessarily about following the particular steps. It's just, it's, it's, it's the principles. It's like, okay, what's happening here. Let's focus on our values in this particular situation or a context, you know, without needing to use any of those words, one way or another, we're placing conscious attention on what we most deeply want to be true here and in one way or another we'll inform our decisions regardless of whether we're flowing step a or, or b you know i'm excited to feel like to be able to contribute and participate in the evolution of this tool and that's one of the directions i'm excited to take it is to support more of us to get to the point where it's it's a part of our lived experience and not a, another tool you know because that, that's the thing i'll mention too is that if it lands for you as a tool, it sits alongside a whole bunch of other tools. And so it's just another its another tool in the toolbox, so to speak, another ball to juggle as opposed to something that that um, can deeply inform the way you use all the other tools in your life or something like that.
0: Yeah, that's really well said. It, it reminds me of a distinction I came to years ago that, and, and was actually reinforced last year when I was working on the the facing fire building resiliency the wildfire documentary i put out and starting to train as a firefighter they have this this conversation in the american firefighting process where you come to firefighter training, you come with one of two um, mindsets you come with an open mindset open to what you hear and open to reevaluate what you know or you come with a fixed mindset i know what i know i'm here because i have to be and that's the difference for me between Uh, A principles-based approach, uh, 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 an open approach, or a prescription-based approach, a closed approach. I have my prescription. I'll walk through my prescription. That's the only thing I have to do here. And you and I both know in interpersonal work, because I do a lot of personal resistance work when people come up against patterns, behaviors, beliefs that resist, that create resistance for them of going towards the life they want, or the business they want, or the relationships they want. That. A lot of that is prescription. A lot of that is, oh, I think a certain way and this must be a certain way. And that's where I think you and I have really come to with decision-making to go, oh, we had this process that was, that was introduced to us. We both experimented with it. And now working with um, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people who actively have used this process, not just learned this process, but used this process and you have observed them using this process and you've seen the value of it. They've seen the value of it to then go, okay, what didn't work? Because that's always going to be the case. Because the immediacy of a person in a different situation will actually show the holes. And as you and I know, there's no such thing as bad feedback, only taking feedback badly, where, oh, I, I didn't explain that too well. And the point is to build competency or capacity to look at the world in a certain way. And if that tool helps for a certain amount of time, great. And then another tool might come up, and that tool helps them in a certain way. But that's what's so interesting about keeping that open mindset instead of a fixed mindset. It's like, great. I've, I remember when I was a kid, I worked with this idea of, of the victimhood cycle. Right? Cause I got, I got dropped into personal development when I was really young and it helped tremendously to know that I can step out of that triangle and move into a place of ownership. And then as I grew up, I was like, well, oh, that's interesting. What are the tools to do that? Like at the beginning, all I needed was the idea and then as certain aspects of my life started to creep in, I was like, oh no, I, now I need mechanics. And once I had the mechanics, I went back to a principle. And I think that's partly what I've come to realize is that when people are stuck, just like when you know, they're stuck on the road and they're, you know, I'll, I'll use a very specific example. When you're working with Duly tires and one uh, you've got a rock in between the two, you literally need to spin one tire independent of the other tire and using, using a, strap jack you can connect that to the front tire to help spin the the rock out and move forward whereas if you use the same tools in a different type of car to help unstuck yourself or to unstick yourself um it wouldn't work and so just the idea of saying okay well i need to get unstuck i know a couple of general first principles and i think this is what we're talking about now that i'm contemplating a bit more when we take a look at individuals like elon musk or richard Feynman, who um who coined the term of going back to first principles? Mm. It's really about going back to first principles. I'm a person. I interact with the world. I have frameworks that I use to interact with, and prescriptions. How do I do that in such a way that actually brings me more happiness, joy, openness, <laughs> love in the world? Ultimately, in a way that feels open instead of closed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well put.
1: It uh, 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 called cool to mind what you just said. Edo Portal is a is a movement person. I think he's uh, You've heard him. Yeah, yeah. I heard him say he's, he's had some wonderful interviews. He's, he's a kind of quite a profound philosopher as well as a, a one hand handstand kind of fellow. And he said something like, principle trumps technique every time, so, you know, because and technique is, is procedure, is step. And then strategy, perhaps you could argue, is, is more general, but principle trumps them both in the sense that if, you're, if, if the principle is anchored deeply in your being, you can generate the right action the right technique or strategy in the moment that's probably going to be utterly unique and it's going to be perfect rather than sort of casting around oh hang on should i use list decision making or is this permaculture or biomimicry and and the, the, the you know the moment's gone the opportunity's passed and people can tell you at some level even if they're nodding that what you're doing is, is copying and pasting as opposed to generating beautiful adapted solutions in the moment from a deep grasp of the principles
0: i think ido has got the He's got the right conversation. When you, when you talk about that, the principle trumps the technique, we're talking about the fact that execution trumps knowledge, right? Knowing a thing is not necessarily doing a thing. And having the technique to do something is not necessarily having the motivation to do something, to do a thing. Uh, something I, I tell all clients as we go throughout this work, especially when we get to the daily statement of purpose, there's a study that was done years ago that was um, popularized by uh, I think his name was John Izzo's The Five Things to Learn Before You Die, where he interviewed a number of octogenarians you know, people in their, their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, who had lived a really good life as nominated by other people and came to this understanding that um, through this study that was done through a university that two groups of people, one, they both had goals they wanted to accomplish and one group had a piece of paper where they put generally what they wanted to do. They wanted to lose weight, so they put move on this of paper and they had to hold on to it, had to look at it 10 to 20 times a day. The other people had walked two times a day. Three months later, they come back and there is a massive gap between improvement. The folks who said two times a day had all reasons not to walk two times a day. And they didn't think, well, then I'll just do sit-ups or I will do jumping jacks or I will, I will move. Right. And that's why I think Ito and, and his ilk, the movement The movement, movement, the physical movement, movement of moving your body, finding the range of motion, working in it, not just grabbing a dumbbell three or four times a day and working that bicep is really where we start to get to values-based decision-making. So now we get back to what we're talking about, where that other group in this study who just had movement or reach out or friendship had, I think it was a two to three X improvement on those goals because they just focused on the value. Well, I want to move and they found a way to move. And that's really where, what you said here, this this idea of principle trumps technique. It's not the how that matters. It's the why and connecting deeply with the motivation of why that's important to you. So it's, and this is where I think you and I differ from savory where, okay, I want to have a clean house, you know, which is a value that I think a lot of people come up with. And you say, why, what is it about the clean house? Well, I want a sense of spaciousness. And we ask even after that, like, why, what is it about that? What is spaciousness? I want to have a restful heart. I want to have a restful mind. And then we actually get to it. But that was, you know, if you stopped at a clean house, it's so surface level and people skip over it. But when they go, I want to have a spacious heart and mind, Mm -hmm. you get to the core of it. And that's the principle versus the technique. Yeah. Clean house might help, but making sure that your desktop is clean once a month or just having a spaciousness where you spend time in an open field that can change the entire way you look at your life as opposed to here's the prescription. I want to clean houses,
1: so walk twice a day. <laughs> yeah, it's, and uh, and I uh, yeah I, I agree, and I, I love. I just I mean that's one of the most precious aspects for me is serving people and adding them value by actually disrupting them towards with the, with why towards depth, and to me it's a magical moment because often they'll start with goals, or sometimes we you know you can get there from wherever. Uh, and I like to get that across often. We're focused on our problems or our goals and we don't want to mistake that for the gold, but either of them will do. So I can work with anyone. They can tell me a problem they've got. They can tell me a they have, and we can use that as a, as a portal, as an entry point. And then through this dialogue, this inquiry, because I feel connected enough to the, the principle, the process, I know where we're heading and it's beautiful to do that. I love doing that with a with group when I'm working with one person in the middle of a group and we can all feel it in our bodies when that person drops it's delicious. And they drop from goal space, problem space, into quality of life. And the energy of the room shifts. Quite often there's tears. And it's like, whew, that's what we're talking about. That's where we're all wanting to get here. And, and you can feel the, just the, you know, like the deep motivation, the power in that. It's like, wow,
0: that's worth that's falling through on. Yeah, and, and that's, the, that's the, the work that if you're, if you're... And I think this is us. This is us modeling this. If you're interested in the principle. There will be no end and you won't be a practitioner who just shows up with the same prescription you did last year. You know, the, the, the instructors in university and in my life that the, are the ones I came back to year after year were the ones that consistently revised their lectures, their notes, because they, they weren't happy. They, they, they were seeking a value-based life. They weren't seeking a comfortable life. They weren't seeking a life that was great. I showed up with this prescription last week. I gotta show up with this prescription this week they really wanted to have a bigger conversation. And that's where, at least for me working with practitioners, I want to know that practitioners I'm working with, if I'm working with them year after year, that they're evolving, right? That they're not they're like, well, I, I learned what psychology was. That's it. There's nothing yeah. else to learn. And that's where I love our conversations because we'll, we'll talk. And now we, I think we've been speaking for two or three years at this point. And We'll talk about like, oh, I've had this epiphany. This is a great new idea. I'm really loving this. Uh, These folks didn't like this. I love this. And unless we stay active, alive and continue to do our own work, it's really hard for people to follow us from a passion-based perspective. I just had my birthday and I I reevaluate my personal context and my values twice a year. One between winter solstice and New Year's uh, because I'm in the Northern Hemisphere. And then one on my birthday, which is in August, which is not solstice, but my birthday is more important to me. So I do what I want and I regenerated my context. And this was, I, I, I love that. I learned this from Carol Sanford via Ethan Roland, Gregory Landua years ago, because they've been working with, with Carol and it's regeneration. Let's go back to the source of who I am. Let's not look at my context, my values from last year, who cares what they were last year? What is it today? What's important for me today? Right? Cause this is a draft until we're dead. What's important for me today and then let's revitalize it. Let's bring it back up. And that's where this idea of digging deeply into the principle of the universe, which is change, and challenging that static nature that I think we become comfortable with. Oh, totally. So, it's so true. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was thinking—is you, is you, you know, however many steps you you package up something like this into. If you if you if you're forcing it into a a, a procedural steps, yeah, you can go through and say, hey, step one tick, step two, step three, tick, step seven tick, whatever. I've done the steps and done. Why isn't working? What the hell's wrong with it? There's something wrong with it. Then you go back and say, okay, let's bring a principle and process based approach to the, the the first step you just took. And they say, yep, so I've done it. Quality of life statements one, two, three. We're like, let's take the first one. <laughs> Why do you want a clean house or whatever it is? And they're like, ah. Oh, right okay because they just glided through i recall in this and other contexts sometimes mostly in a permaculture design concept right where i'm striving to to offer and develop um a a process and principles based approach to design i'm calling living design process and i've had the frustration with participants on courses they're like dan the course is nearly finished just give us the steps (laughs) just give us the checklist you know and realizing that's part of what i'm trying to disrupt but oh it's a, it's it's not about it's not about that. Sure, we might share some as part of getting the ball rolling, but let's not, not mistake the I don't know the baby for the bathwater. I don't know if that's the right metaphor.
0: Yeah, I think that's part of it, but at the same time, it's it's addressing the parts of people that need that because they've been raised in a culture that is so prescriptive. That is so prescriptive. This is what you do. These are the narratives to run. These are the roles to walk through. This is what you're you're aiming for a nuclear family. You're aiming for a spouse that has an income. You have an income, 2.5 kids, dogs, suburb, you know, those those prescriptions. And, And for those that have had their end of suburbia moment, they realize that the prescription, if offered by somebody else, is usually a tool. It's a tool of control. It's a tool of making people act a certain way, walk a certain way, be a certain way. And when they walk through that and they realize that that is so far from their essence, it's so far from the loves of their life. And part of them can no longer stand to live in that place that isn't themselves. They walk themselves back and go, okay, I need a a way to walk out of this. And so they'll become seekers, right? They'll find any tool, any way, any process to just, break the mold that has kept them so, so tight. And then they do the pendulum swing. On one side, it's like, I have walked the line that everyone has told me to do. And they swing all the way through the middle, which is where we want to end up. They Swing all the way through the middle, being like, I'm free, I'll do anything. And, and we, I, we get a lot of those people who are like, this is a great idea and we'll do this and we'll do this. And everything's shiny and I'll try all the things. And what's so lovely about values-based decision-making is that you just say, great, I don't want you to hold to anything except for yourself. What are the values you hold? What are the things that are important to you? And then use those values to filter through what the business is, where to live, who to be with, what's next, and then constantly challenge those values. And if we wanted to boil this all down, that's that's probably the most principle-based perspective we could boil it down to and then say, great, hold to that. If, if my process gets too rigid, go seek others and they get to you. And it's like, if Dan's process gets too rigid, go back to savory and if savory, like, find that process that makes sense for you. But never forget that there are tools that when not if we we fall off the rails, you can come back to to help guide you back into that remembrance of Oh, yeah, values first, because if I work on goals, somebody else has already defined that goal, and I'm going to be making money, I'm going to be giving my life energy to somebody else.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well put. Yeah. Early on in a conversation, that was floating up for me as a, as a, as a draft principle, something like values before goals or quality of life before goals, you know, absolutely fundamental. Now, as, as you're saying that too, that people can they bounce around. And I think often the volition can be, well, I want to find the right, the right procedure for me, right? Is it, is it the way Savory approaches it? Is it the way holistic management international approaches? Is it the way that Javin or Dan approaches it? And I was thinking, well, my invitation would be, yeah, definitely move around but ask that question or well, what processes and principles are, are the same, you know, are underlying all of these and they are the same and then help with any particular procedures and steps being the right ones. They should be evolving anyway and, and make them your own. I was almost wondering if a principle could be something around you know, do your own work or something or make it your own or personal deep resonance as the primary criterion or, you know, something like that rather than because Javin said because sounds so sad.
0: Yeah, and that's where checking in and seeing. And I do this a lot with my clients. I say, out of this conversation, what is sticking with you from a sense of a principle? What what inside of you goes? Yeah, I heard that, and, and you know, this is great because this goes back to your authenticity, uh, authenticity thing. You know, is it a clunk? Is it a cling? Is it a ping? Mm-hmm. Can you hear the resonance of that? And you know, I hated that word for a number of years, and then I started working in... Um, in in biofield work and really understanding the value that you know, as as so many physicists and so many mathematicians have said, uh, Planck said it. You know, the, arguably the the father of modern physics, uh, that it is vibration. And so you hear that and you go, yeah, okay. And for me, it's always been like expletive, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. do you feel that resonance? Where you're like, oh yeah, it feels gritty and good and all those things. But once that comes. Then to say, great, I'm going to dig deep. And this is where I've had a number of clients who are like, oh, yeah, I tried your thing, and then I tried this, and I tried this. It's like, great, what was the response? And they forgot to observe the feedback. Oh, yeah, your thing worked great, but then this thing didn't work great, and this thing didn't work great. And so now I'm kind of lost. It's like, well, hold up. Like, if it's my thing or somebody else's thing, I don't really care. It worked, and you kept on on searching. You know, this is what – Terence McKenna and Wade Davis have both talked about in the psychedelics movement. When you knock on the door of higher knowledge, let's call it, you knock on the door of higher knowledge and it answers, stop knocking. Take the information that came and go deep with it. Stop trying to dig a hundred foot hole by digging a hundred holes and digging a a foot deep. Find the process that works, change it as you will, and dig the hundred feet, you know, as Lee said, take the best, leave the rest, and add something uniquely your own and and find some depth.
1: Mm-hmm. Bully. I'm feeling this has been very, it's had a lot of, it has not been dull. It's been exciting and emergent and alive and I've deeply appreciated it. And uh, yeah, I'm feeling that this is this is a, a thumbs up, a, a big tick to the experiment of, of trying this kind of, hopefully, semi-accessible shop talk. And um, so thanks for your time. I don't know if you've got any closing reflections, but um, I'm looking forward to the next one already.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I do. I, I think for, for us, it's sort of like having a, a process moment and facilitation where you go, oh, there's there's a bigger conversation here between you and I, which is we had talked about this as a probability two or three years ago when we started working together. We were saying, oh, it'd be really cool to do shop talk about decision-making because you and I become electric around it. We could become really interested and fascinated and we love talking to each other about it. And I love that we got there and it took time and intimacy and all those things to develop. And 100%, you know, if this becomes mainstays in our own podcast and we end up thinking it has such value that, you know, we chip in to create its own thread so that way people can just follow this conversation and it's, you know, decision-making talk with making better decisions with, with Dan and Javin, fantastic. But I love this and I wanna keep doing this. Uh, we'll keep doing this regardless. And I think recording it and offering it to folks to understand that this is not a static piece. And, for, and I always felt terrible about it, that the folks who worked with me this year, it wasn't the same as it was five years ago. And I, was, I always felt bad for those people. I'm like, oh, it's so much better now. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I wish you guys could see it now. Because I've grown. I've now worked with over a thousand people with um, the decision-making process that's refining within me, which really feels, when I think about it, values-based decision-making I'm called to. Uh, but I love that idea of like, what is it? Refine it. Come back to it. Talk about it. And so I say thank you. Thank you for being a foil to to bounce off of. Thanks for helping inspire me originally in so much of this work. And um, thanks for being such a gosh darn good friend. Thanks
1: so much, Evan.